this. Movies are not movies. Movies are pictures. Movies are tiny, fleeting images flickering inside a box you have to press your eye to the side of. These images are many things. A roaring sea, a ballet dancer on her toes, a mother feeding a child. But often, they're designed to titillate. So it's this. It's a shirtless man flexing just for you. It's a steam train blaring its horn, beating the tracks, getting closer, closer, closer. It's two roosters, claws out, beaks bloodied as they maul each other down. It's 1896. Welcome to cinema. When we talk about the origins of cinema, we're really having more than one conversation. After all, around the world, movies mean different things, culturally, socially, and politically, as do the stories that came before, during, and after their arrival in a country. So ultimately, the question of cinema's beginning mostly depends on how you want to define cinema. Many will trace it back to vaudeville and theatre, which is a completely logical connection to make. But if we encompass theatre, why not Chinese shadow puppetry, which shows a keen sense of cinematography and mise-en-scene in a way that a lot of other art forms don't? And if shadow puppetry, why not books or ballads or oral storytelling or dance or even cave paintings? If we know nothing else about history, we know that the tradition of stories predates speech, and it certainly predates movies. In this way, the beginning of cinema isn't so much a static, planted moment, but more like the first sprout of a new tree, with many roots of many different lengths curling out into the heady, porous soil of history. For our sake, though, let's talk about cinema just as cinema itself, as a technological medium, not a creative one. In that sense, it's logical to think of the invention of cinema as really the invention of the camera and the science experiments and equipments that predate that particular technological advancement. So hey, if we start here, maybe cinema begins with a burst of interest in the eye. In the early 19th century, many scientists around the world developed a preoccupation with the way we see the world, particularly in how the eye perceives movement. Much of this research resulted in the creation of a bunch of optical devices that gave an illusion of movement by using a small number of drawings with tiny alterations. In 1832, Belgian physicist Joseph Plateau and Austrian geometry professor Simon von Stampfer created the Fenikistoscope. The Venekistoscope was operated by spinning a cardboard disc and viewing the reflection of the image in a mirror through a series of moving slits. Through the distortion and flicker, the disc created the illusion that the image was moving, pretty much exactly how a modern GIF works today. These simple pictures, usually of birds flying, horses racing, or musicians playing, are largely considered to be the first widespread form of animation and the first major precursor to modern cinema. The Venekistoscope was followed in 1834 by the zoetrope. Invented by British mathematician William George Horner, the zoetrope acted similarly to the Venekistoscope, but instead of spinning a small cardboard wheel, you would spin a round metal cylinder with a band of sequential pictures on the inside. You'd peer through the slits in the side of the cylinder and watch as the pictures blurred together to once again form the illusion of movement. If both sound a little familiar, it's probably because you've likely seen them before, although perhaps not in this context. During Victorian era Europe, both of these devices were sold widely as parlor toys for children and would become a staple in many homes, an early form of entertainment which would thrill, however briefly, between games of toy soldiers, kaleidoscopes, and clockwork trains. 
While Plateau, Von Stampfer and Horner were trying to make their still pictures move, many others were trying to make moving pictures still. Photography was the name of the game for many artists and inventors working across Europe in the early 1800s, particularly around France. The first still photograph was made on a glass plate in 1826 by French inventor Claude Nieps, but it required an exposure time of eight hours and only one copy could ever be made. It was advanced in 1839 by French painter Louis-Jacques Mandet Daguerre, who invented the daguerreotype, which was able to capture still images on silvered copper plates, something that is largely considered to be the first commercially successful photographic process. Not long after, British scientist, inventor and photographer Henry Fox Talbot invented the concept of the negative-positive photographic process, allowing a faster print time, a cheaper medium and a way to print a picture more than once. Both areas of science were relatively siloed until 1878, when British photographer Edward Mybridge was hired by the governor of California, Leland Stanford, to conduct a study of galloping horses to prove that, at some point, the horse had all four hooves off the ground. As this was too fast to be seen by the naked eye, Mybridge set up a row of 12 cameras at a race course in Sacramento, each making an exposure in one thousandth of a second. The photos recorded one half second intervals of movement, and he later made a lantern to project the moving images of the horse, just like what would have been done with the zoetrope, basically creating the illusion of movement once again. Oh, and just for the record, Stanford was actually right. A galloping horse does have instances where their hooves do not touch the ground. A similar study happened in 1882 with French physiologist Etienne Jules Marie studied the flight of birds and other rapid animal movements. He built a box-type camera that used an intermittent mechanism to expose a series of photographs on a strip of paper, making him widely considered to be the first to combine flexible film stock and an intermittent mechanism in photographing motion. Still, it wouldn't be until 1888 that the camera would take another leap forward, when George Eastman, an American entrepreneur, invented a still camera that made photographs on rolls of sensitized paper. A year later, he introduced transparent celluloid roll film, which, while intended for cameras, would revolutionize the film industry. He'd sell them all under his new company name, Kodak. A quick aside. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention French artist and inventor Louis-Augustin Le Prince. Inspired by Daguerre, who was a friend of his father's, um, and Mybred's experiment with the galloping horses, he was an accomplished painter and had long been a student of both science and photography. He moved to England in 1868, where he married another artist, Elizabeth Whitley. Together they started a school of applied art and were successful enough to be hired together to paint a portrait of Queen Victoria. His success in painting didn't shake his interest in photography, though, and he travelled to the US where he studied the cameras made by Mybridge and Mary and built his own 16-lens camera, which would take a rapid 16 photos to produce the illusion of movement. On his return to the UK in 1888, he built a new single-lens camera that took advantage of Kodak's new paper roll of film and started creating seconds-long films. While the paper film was too flimsy for projection, it could be shown via the light of the magic lanterns, and there are theories that Prince did show some of these films, making him the forefather of modern cinema. Unfortunately, a lot of Prince's work was lost. On September 16, 1890, Prince boarded a train to Paris to showcase his inventions and his work. Only the train arrived in Paris with no sign of Prince. No man, no body, no note, no luggage. He vanished without a trace, and he would never be seen again.
due to the mystery of Prince's disappearance, and we talk about the invention of cinema, we're really talking about four men, August and Louis Lumiere, collectively known as France's pioneering Lumiere brothers, and the American inventor Thomas Edison, along with his often overlooked assistant, William Kennedy Laurie Dixon. All three would be responsible for enormous technological advances that would ultimately lead to the creation of commercial cinema. Edison, after a viewing of Mary's camera in Paris, would create with Dixon the peephole kinetoscope in 1891, revolutionising the photographic industry. The kinetoscope basically worked like a flip book, creating the effect of movement through playing sequential images on a loop over a light source with a high-speed shutter. At the same time, back in France, the Lumiere brothers, the sons of a camera manufacturer and photographer, were fascinated by Edison's inventions, but were probably critical of its impracticality. For one, it was big. It weighed around a 1,000 pounds or 435 kilos, and given there was only one peephole to view the pictures through, only one person could watch at a time. Within four years, the Lumiere brothers had made a camera of their own, the portable and much lighter cinematograph, weighing only 20 pounds or 9 kilos. It was a camera, printer, and projector all rolled into one. If the kinetoscope was a flip book, the cinematograph was most often compared to a sewing machine. It would thread the film intermittently and quite a bit slower than the kinetoscope, which had the effect of reducing the clamour of the rotating film and improving the visual fluidity. In other words, it smoothed it out. More than anything, though, the biggest advancement with it was its projector style, meaning that more than one person could watch a film at a time. Back in America, Edison and Dixon continued to develop their kinetoscope and founded a small production company, Black Maria, to make films for their machines that they could go on to exploit commercially, much the way the Lumiere brothers were starting to do themselves in France. They set it up on the grounds of Edison's New Jersey laboratory and started production by January of 1893. Their films were only around 20 seconds long, as that's all the kinetoscope could manage, and most featured well-known athletes of vaudeville acts flexing, flipping, and dancing in short, sharp bursts. The following year, Edison opened the first kinetoscope parlour in New York, charging audiences a nickel to watch the films. These kinetoscope parlours would pop up all over the world in the coming months, but wouldn't be viable for very long. This might have been a brand new industry, but it was also a time of rapid change, invention, and competition. And besides, the Lumia cinematograph was easier to use. It was a lot more portable, and it could produce films up to a minute long. Beyond any of that, though, it was also cheaper. The Lumiere brothers weren't the only competition on the market, though. German brothers Max and Emil Skladanowski had built their own camera in 1895, the Bioscope, which held two films of strip, each three and a half inches wide, running side by side, which allowed them to make films for 15 minutes. Their minor success unfortunately didn't last, with the cameras and the projectors being far too large and far too unwieldy to be sustainable. The bioscope only really served to further boost the Lumiere Brothers' cinematograph to the point where its speed and manufacture became more or less an industry standard in Europe. Capitalising on the success of their invention, on December 28, 1895, at the Salon Indien du Grand Café in Paris, the Lumiere Brothers showed their first work, a series of ten short films of day-to-day life. Workers leaving the Lumiere factory, a shot of the sea, August and his wife feeding their child, all less than a minute long. Not exactly the most inspiring content, but the likes of it had never been seen before, and audiences crowded eagerly, desperate to get a glimpse of the new art form. 
The Lumiere brothers would go on to open many theatres around France to screen their films in the coming years, making thousands of titles throughout their career and showing 20 shows a day, but despite their success, they never really believed cinema would take off. Famously, they said, the cinema is an invention without any future. Across the ponds in England, the Edison Kinetoscope premiered that same year, as did the parlours that displayed the machines. As Edison had made the regrettable mistake of not patenting his invention outside of the US, R.W. Paul, a producer of photographic equipment, took advantage, manufacturing and selling copies of the machine to anyone who asked. As Edison refused to supply his Black Maria films for the bootlegged machines, Paul and his partner, Bert Akers, went on to create their own compatible camera and then on to make movies of their own. Akers in particular proved to have a knack for filmmaking. He made a range of successful shorts, in particular his 1895 film, Rough Sea at Dover, just 25 seconds long, which evoked intense responses from audiences around England. It is, as the name implies, a short video of the Rough Sea at Dover. Um, and you can actually catch it on YouTube. Um, I'd recommend it. Sure, it might seem primitive now, but it's not hard to see why it amazed its 19th century audience. The following year, the Lumiere brothers looked to expand, distributing their system of film and projection across Europe, including into London, directly competing for the first time with Edison's kinetoscope. Their cinematograph rapidly caught on, and Akers and Paul, not a peddler's side of a good thing, tweaked their camera and recreated the Lumiere's projectors to capitalise on the movement. Once again, they sold their new camera and projectors to anyone who wanted one, and with that, filmmaking caught fanned and spread like a wildfire across the UK. Back in America, projection systems and cameras were only just starting to pick up steam, with numerous rival groups competing to introduce a projection system that might be as commercially successful as what was happening in Europe. The first of these was Woodville Latham, an ordnance officer of the Confederacy during the American Civil War and a professor of chemistry at West Virginia University, along with his sons Otway and Gray. Yes, those names are amazing. (laughs) Together they invented their own camera and projector and were able to show films and operate a small storefront theatre in 1895. The picture, though, was too dim and, as a result, failed to capture the audience used to the brightness of the kinetoscope's picture. That said, they did create the Latham loop, the process of adding a loop in the film to relieve tension of the film itself, allowing longer movies to be made. The Latham loop is still actually in most cameras and projectors today. The second and perhaps most important of these competitors was C. Francis Jenkins and Thomas Amat, mechanics and inventors who created the Fantoscope projector, which first exhibited in late 1895, showing kinetoscope films. It was also pretty dim, and its projection was unsteady enough to be distinctly unappealing to audiences. The pair quickly split, with Amat sticking around to work on their invention. He did improve it, renaming it Vitascope and getting some important backing from a pair of businessmen, Norman Raff and Frank Gammon. By this point, it was 1896, and Edison's kinetoscope was quickly proving dated. In a spur of inspiration, Raff, Gammon and Armat decided to show the Vitascope to Edison, who knew an opportunity when he saw one. He agreed to manufacture the projector retitling it Edison's Vitascope, although he made no changes to Armat's design, and arranged for a big public premiere at Costa and Biles Music Hall in New York. They showed six movies, five of which came from Edison's Black Maria production company, and the sixth being Bert Aker's Rough Sea at Dover, which met a similar reception as it had in Europe. The event was just that, an event, remarkably successful, but also hope for projected films in America. 
And so cinema was born. It wasn't long before picture shows were offered widely. First the mundane shorts of day-to-day life, which still managed to completely wow audiences, but then rapidly more adventurous takes, particularly at local Nickelodeons and peep shows, shorts of crime and violence and sex. Yes, but also of trains rushing towards you or, or popular vaudeville acts doing minor performances. By continuing their tradition, France and America would once again be at the forefront of cinema's development, namely through two filmmakers, George Melies, a professional magician who'd become fascinated with the Lumiere's invention, and Edwin S. Porter, one of the camera operators hired by Edison to make films for Black Maria. The pair would work separately, but both would have undeniable effects on pivoting camera to storytelling instead of simple entertainment. Melies, through his iconic 1902 surreal fantasy film, A Trip to the Moon, and Porter for his 1903 western, The Great Train Robbery. Both were only 12 minutes long, but film would never be the same. By 1906, movies were over an hour long, something that premiered with Australia's own story of the Kelly Gang, and by the early 1910s, the cinema industry in America had left New York, Chicago and San Francisco and headed west, taking advantage of the longer daylight hours, the better weather and the expanses of unmanned land in a place we'd all come to know as Hollywood. So by the time the 1920s rolled around, the movie industry had thrown off the training wheels of its adolescence and come of age. Hundreds of films were being made each year by competitive big-name studios like Warner Brothers, Paramount, RKO, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer or MGM, and 20th Century Fox. Clara Bow had popularized the idea of a movie star, and Hollywood had become an American staple, synonymous with the idea of flappers, films, parties, and general excess. Cinema hadn't just been invented, it had been an epidemic, an infectious art form that proved its potential creatively, commercially, and conversationally. It was dominating newspapers, party conversations, schoolyard chatter. An offhand comment about two actors getting married in a trade press had launched the gossip industry. People were showing up in droves to go to the movies and showed no sign of slowing down. And hey, one man thought sitting behind his studio desk, watching over his rapidly expanding empire. Wouldn't it be something to acknowledge that? The Oscars Project is written, researched, produced and edited by me. It's neither authorised nor endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. For all sources used in writing and recording this episode, please visit insidevoiceau.com forward slash the Oscars Project. My name is Sophie. Thanks for listening.